0: the second Sunday in this series of uh, Becoming His Church, and, you know, most of you know, like, part of my life has been being, you know, journalist, writing, things like that, and, you know, those words are important, Becoming His Church, and I want us to kind of keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that later, but just to, you know, just say And why why Acts? Why are we here in Acts? What are we looking for here? Well, we're looking back 2,000 years. We're looking back at just the birth of the church. And what what we want to see is how did God work in that church 2,000 years ago, and how did the people respond? And what I hope that we see, I hope we see several things. One is I hope we see ourselves there. I hope we see somehow that even though it's it's you know different world, different culture, different times, that we should see things in the book of Acts that are true of us today. But I also I hope that we we see things that, that aren't there yet. Maybe things that are in the process of becoming and perhaps even you can ask yourself this as we, as we look at what the Bible tells us his church is, is to ask yourself, not simply like, is this church that? But is that what you're looking for? Is that what you, is that what you need? Is that what Christianity is, is leading toward? That it's not just a church. But it's his church. And there's something very specific about this church that we're going to see. Last week, we, you know, we saw several things. One is we saw that, that his church follows him. His church follows him. It's not like just a group of people and, you know, we just kind of make up our own rules, do whatever we want. No, we follow him. And we follow him because we look at his word and we try to study his word. We try to understand his word. And so scripture is, is so important in the church. Um, you can have a lot of groups that call themselves churches, but they're not churches in the sense of what the Bible talks about is a church if, if, if the scriptures are not just present in the room, but they are, that, that's where we're looking. That's, that's where we're seeking after God's word. I mean... Maybe it would make my job a lot easier if I didn't have to deal with the Bible. if you guys just wanted me to come up here and tell you whatever I've been thinking for the past seven days uh It may be more entertaining. Not sure it'd be all that helpful to you. but you know i'm I know John does this. I do it when you know we we don't just You know, I don't see John in there just, you know, checking out different blogs and all this other stuff to try to figure out what's the cool thing to say. You know, he's there, Bible's open, studying God's word, you know, reading commentaries, you know, thinking, praying, you know, because it's not to bring you our word, it's to bring you his word, because at the center of the church... Is following him, which is that word that the world is scared of, but the church shouldn't be scared of, and it's obedience. It's obedience to God's word. The second thing we saw last week is that the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is something supernatural about what happens in church. We'll talk a little bit more about this today and in the coming weeks, because when people hear the word supernatural, they get a little bit freaked out. And they think like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? A couple weeks or we're going to try to raise the dead here? No, um, not literally. But the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just keep in mind that there's a lot of people who think these are just code words. Like empowered by the Holy Spirit doesn't really mean... God is coming in and empowering us by the Holy Spirit, they're just kind of code words for, hey, try your best. Or they're just code words for unlock the human goodness inside of you. That's not what the Bible's saying. The reason the Holy Spirit has to come upon you is because it's not there in and of yourself. So his church follows him. His church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then his church prepares for the return of the king. There's this, this, this hope. But it's not a sitting around passive hope. It's an active hope. You, you know, it's... Um, my wife does this better than me. But if we know people are coming over to visit, you know, she, you know we don't just sit around going, hey, it's going to be great. We're going to visit. Like, there's a... Active hope, you know, cleaning up your house, you know, making your house look better than it ever does, um, you know, preparing for your guest, and that's kind of the picture is that our hope for the King is not to say like, oh, my life is miserable, the world is miserable, there's so much tragedy. Please, Jesus, come save us. No, it's it's preparing for His return, preparing not just my heart, but also preparing ourselves as the church you may find this surprising but I've never been a bride but I'm pretty sure that most brides you know the day of the wedding that they're going to spend a lot of time getting ready for the wedding and I know there's some bridezillas out there that it's just about them looking special and them, you know, being awesome. But I think there's the other thing about, for both the, the bride and the groom, it's like, it's not just about, you know, so everybody else can see, but you want to be ready for that person you're going to marry. And, and so there's preparation that takes place. The Bible talks about us being the bride of Christ, you know, are we just going to show up? You know, show up at the show up at the wedding. Ah, whatever I happen to be wearing today, that's what I'm wearing. Ah, oh, you know, I got up, my hips a bad hair day. Just put a hat on. You know, is that what we're going to do? Or are we getting ready? Well, those those that's what we looked at last week, and and some of these themes are going to be repeated again and again throughout Scripture. But I wanted to shift a little bit this morning because that's kind of what's happening in the story. There's kind of this lull in the book of Acts. You have this awesome time where they have these last, you know, few weeks with Jesus. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and he says the Holy Spirit is coming. And this section we're going to look at today is that time between Jesus leaving and the Holy Spirit coming. So it's a little bit of a shift. And, and, and I wanted to, you know, I think it's important that, that this part of the story is here because I think there's something that we often forget. We often forget this. You know, if, if, if you read a book, you know, how many times when you read a book do you actually think about the author? Sometimes you think, like, that's an awesome book, but you don't even know the author's name. Or maybe you benefited from a medicine. And you know, you, you, you think what a great medicine, but you don't think that there were people that developed that medicine. You know, one of the things, because I used to be a journalist, I, would, I always think about is whenever I see like these awesome videos or photographs, you know, sometimes you'll see like the, the video of, you know, during a war, you'll see the video like shooting into the helicopter. My question is always where's the cameraman? Where's the photographer? If if he or she's getting this shot and it looks scary, where what is this person doing hanging out by you know we we forget that there's somebody had to get that video. Someone had to get that photograph. It just didn't magically appear and especially, you know, back in the the ancient times, like the 70s and the 80s. And I think this is a truth that happens with God. Many people substitute faith in God for faith in people, faith in tools, faith in processes that God uses. Because God doesn't, doesn't just show up all the time and say, this is me, this is, I'm doing this. And as you've probably heard me say before, God in the Bible chooses to work through other people and he chooses to work through natural processes. We always gravitate to the miracles because they seem so spectacular. But they're the exception. The miracles are the exception. When you see the exodus, you don't see... Sorry, sound people. I uh, moved my microphone. Um, You know, you you, you see this one miracle, and of you know the parting of the Red Sea, but then you see a whole lot of walking. There's more walking in the Book of Exodus than anything else. The supernatural God uses at times to get our attention. But he prefers to work through natural processes. He prefers to work through other people. And the problem is, is that we don't, we don't recognize that it's God who's using these things. So whether God is working through law, if God says, here's the laws, if you live this way, you know, these are the things that I'm going to do, this is my word, we begin to trust only in the law. We begin to forget that it's God that gave us the law and that the law in many ways represents to us who God is. We do the same thing with, we do the same thing with natural processes. If God chooses to work through natural processes, we're like, well, no, those are just natural processes. That's not God. God. When God works through other people, we do the same thing. We tend to trust other people, and we go, well, but that's not God. That's other people. You know, and kind of worst of all is when God works through you or works through me, when he works through us, we start to trust in just ourselves and say, that's not God. God. I think this this story that comes between Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit coming down upon the church, I think it's a good reminder that throughout all of Acts, whether the Holy Spirit or Jesus or God are explicitly mentioned, it's all the work of the Spirit. It's all the work of God. And so here's Jesus. He's, I mean, here's, the, here's these, these believers. Jesus has given his final instructions, and he's ascended to heaven. So now they're, they're waiting. And here in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves in prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We're not 100% sure they went back to the same, to the same room. It's, it seems that that's that may have been what happened. It's not super important that it did. But it does tell us they went back to, this, to an upper room and they had been in rooms together before. And in the last like two months, they had been in rooms together where they were with Jesus and they thought, this is awesome. And where they just thought like, oh, this is another great Passover feast. They've been in rooms together before where they were terrified not knowing what's going to happen next. And then they've been in rooms together before when, when they were amazed to see the resurrected Jesus. And now they're in this room and, and it says they were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. It's so interesting. It's so interesting what we see here. We see, we see the that the first thing Luke writes about is that they obey. They obey immediately. Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem. That's where they went. But then it says they were, with, they were in one accord. In other words, they were in agreement and in harmony with one another, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoting themselves to prayer. If we want to become his church, we need to be a church that's devoted to prayer because his church is devoted to prayer. This isn't the only time it's going to be mentioned here. It's not like they were only devoted to prayer at the beginning when it was kind of scary. They're going to be devoted to prayer throughout the book of Acts. It is a mark of a a thoroughly spirit-filled, you know, Christ-centered church. Jesus himself had said, he said, you know, when he was just probably a few days earlier before his um, crucifixion, that, that he said, my house is a house of prayer. It's not a den of robbers. And he was quoting from Isaiah 56. And that whole passage says, it says this, it says, um, you know, God had, in, in the Isaiah passage, God had spoken to different groups that for some reason, felt left out. And the different groups were, were the eunuchs, the outcasts, and then foreigners. And, and the whole passage says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's like, this is, it's all coming, it's coming true. What we're going to see roll out in the book of Acts is, is God's people coming together, but they're not coming together just from one ethnic group. It's the house of prayer for all people. And you might ask, well, well, what are they praying for? Are they praying for the Spirit to come? Well, the Spirit had been promised to Jesus, and so maybe they weren't really praying for the Spirit to come. You might go, well, what else were they praying for? My guess is actually something I think that we don't pray for enough what I think they're praying for is they're praying that they will be able to receive the Spirit and do what the Spirit tells them to do. That they are ready for the Spirit. You may not have heard me say this. You may not have been here when I last said it. But for, you know, six years since I've been here, six and a half now, I think, getting close to One thing I've said is, what would happen if next Sunday, a hundred brand new Christians showed up at our church? What would that do to us? Would that energize us? Would we be ready? Would each one of you go, oh, baby Christian, I need to adopt one. I need to... I need to help them. I need to walk with them. What if God poured out his spirit to us in that way? Would we be ready? What if suddenly God gave us inroads into, into either into Palolo Valley or, or maybe gave us opportunity to reach out to people in the homeless community? And in fact, we weren't reaching, just reaching out to them. They were coming here. Would we be ready for the Holy Spirit to say, I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you with people that you can serve and you can minister to. Or would we be like, man, they're sitting in my pew. Oh man, there was no parking today. I mean, what would we do? We need to not just pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon us in new ways. We need to pray that we will be ready. Because let me tell you a secret that I'm going to tell you at the end. The Spirit's already here. The Spirit's already here. That's what's different. These guys, they're waiting for the Spirit. Bible tells us Spirit's already here. I think that's what they're praying for. Because they have no idea. Jesus just says, Spirit's coming. They have no idea. They have no idea what that's going to mean. What if Jesus had said, "Uh, Spirit's coming, and when Spirit comes, Spirit's gonna, gonna, the Holy Spirit's going to have you go out into the streets, and you're just gonna engage anybody out there, even people who don't know your language, and you're gonna start telling them about Jesus. Do you think there would be 120 gathered? I think some of them would be like, ooh, wow. I I just thought we'd have this good feeling, this good experience. We'd just be amazed and dazzled. He wants us to go and speak to people who don't speak the same language as us and tell them about Jesus? What what if he said, and and by the way, the same spirit prompting you to do that, um, you, Stephen, Stephen, you're going to be dead within a couple months. Uh, you, James, uh, you too. And you're going to be killed because the Spirit is prompting you to go out and to share the gospel. What if instead of just saying Spirit's coming, let me tell you what Spirit's going to tell you to do. They don't know. Do we know? You see, there's one thing we know. We know what the Spirit should already be doing. And then there's this this thing that the Spirit might do that we don't know yet. But what the Spirit should already be doing is what we see kind of lived out in these people who haven't even received the Spirit yet. Sure, there could be some supernatural manifestation. There could be an incredible influx or incredible opportunities for us to minister and to serve and evangelize. But how the Spirit should already be showing up here is in how we love one another, how we care for one another, how close do we know one another, how quick are we to forgive one another? Are we a church that has, if, if, we, if we could go into to each church member's um, little house in their head, and in those closets are all those grudges. they've, You know, they're, they're not bothering me today, but I got them crammed in that closet. You know, I don't know that you have this room in your house when you have guests come over and you say, um, you can go anywhere, but don't go in that room. Or are we a church that because of love's, God's incredible love for us and that love that is transforming us and extends to others because the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes in Romans, pours out this love on us, is that constantly driving us to better, stronger, healthier relationships with one another? Are we bearing one another's burdens? Do we grieve with one another? Do we rejoice with one another? The Spirit, if the Spirit's here, then that should be evident. That should be abundant. And so his church is devoted to prayer. And I think one of the things we pray about is God, help us. Help us already live the way that the Spirit is empowering us to live. And God, help us to be ready for what the Spirit's about to do. In verse 15 it says in those days Peter stood up Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120 and Peter said brothers the scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of david concerning judas who became a guide to those who arrested jesus for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the, people, um, that the field was called in their own language akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office those verses 18 and 19 are largely thought to be parenthetical. In other words, Paul, uh, Peter didn't say that. Luke puts that in there to explain it to the readers, the people who, you know, Theophilus and others who would read it who may not be really familiar with, with all of this story. So he adds it. But what Peter says are the verses before that, verses 16 and 17, and then in verses 20, um, yeah, in verse 20. And what Peter's doing here is something that he had seen Jesus do and that you're going to see the church consistently do because this is what his church does. His church interprets and follows scripture. Peter doesn't try to hide the problem. He doesn't say like, you know what? Judas Iscariot, he's dead. He's dead. Uh, Let's just not talk about him anymore. You know, if you're starting a new movement, if you got all these people coming together, I mean, why couldn't people have, you know, legitimately asked, like, how do we know there's not another Judas Iscariot around? You guys apparently missed it. He was with you for three years, and you missed it. But they don't hide the problem. They don't try to rationalize. They don't try to explain. Instead, Peter goes to Scripture. And in particular, he's quoting from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And he's talking about the importance of Scripture. And then he says the Scripture, and he's talking about prophetic Scripture. This is his belief that Scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled it's kind of interesting because we're going to see scripture being fulfilled in two different ways and let me just tell you you want to be fulfilling scripture the second way the first way is Judas is fulfilling scripture by betraying by not repenting and then by committing suicide. So he's, in a sense, fulfilling Scripture, but he's not doing it in a way that I think we would want to be known for fulfilling Scripture. Peter is calling upon those followers, the people who will become the first church. He's saying, we need to fulfill Scripture. And you know how we're going to fulfill Scripture? First of all, we're going to understand Scripture, And some people might ask, like, where did Peter get this use of Scripture? And I really believe that's why Luke told us what he told us in the first few verses of Acts. He got it from Jesus. But the church needs to understand Scripture, and then it needs to obey. And so when he says... May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then he says, let another take his office. He says, we need to fulfill it. We need to fulfill scripture. They're going to fulfill scripture by understanding and obeying scripture. The premium is on knowing and following scripture. But nevertheless, this has to be the center of what the church is. It's why if you look at so many of our activities, they're centered around studying the word. They're centered around hearing the word. Because it's it's who we are if we're going to be his church. We need to interpret scripture properly and we need to follow and obey. And in this last section, it says, so one of the men Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You see, they're trying to, they're trying to fulfill scripture there's a lot of scriptures they could have talked about fulfilling, but they're, they're, they're kind of zeroing in on this one. And what they, what they recognize from the beginning, they recognize that, that, that this group that's going to become the church, they need godly leaders. They need godly leaders. That's what his church does. They seek godly leaders. And notice how they do it. They do it in a way that, one way that's somewhat familiar to us and one way that's kind of weird. They, 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 they have this criteria, and they say, what is the criteria? The criteria is the person had to have been there, they had to have been one of the followers of Jesus from the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist so three years before, and faithfully followed for the past three years. What did that do? Well, first of all, it, it was like showing them, like, okay, this is, this is someone who's demonstrated faithfulness, but it's also someone we know. Someone we know. You see, in the world, in the world sometimes it's bad and oftentimes it's bad when when companies just like like keep like promoting people from within kind of like you know we, we if it's family we call it nepotism you know and so there's in in the world a lot of times in the corporate world you know you're always you know looking out you're trying to you know go go grab somebody They call it headhunting, right? You go grab somebody from another company and they're trying to get your people and, and that's what's happening. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of churches do. When churches look for leaders, they often, the first place they look is usually outside. They look outside. But if you look at what they're doing, they're looking inside. They're looking within the group. They're looking for people that that they know, that they've seen, that they know Jesus poured into. They choose from within. And some of you, again, who are here from the beginning when I started here, you know that's what I said. That's my goal. My goal, and I'm far behind on this goal. I had hoped to have this goal accomplished by year three. But I would love to already have two or three people that can step in and do what I do. I don't need job security. If all of you are sitting around going, why do we need him? I would be totally okay with it if there were two or three other people that were already able to do the job. If we really want godly leaders... Why are we relying on the method that the world relies on? Why are we not raising up godly leaders from within our church? It doesn't mean that to kind of get over this hump, we're going to have to bring in people from the the outside. But we need to be investing. And the investment starts like in the nursery, in the children's ministry. In the youth ministry, the young adults, the adults, discipleship, whether you're helping a new Christian learn the basics of the faith or helping a more mature Christian kind of move to the next level. All of this, when we minister together, we, we didn't get to do this for a long time at the church we're at in, in Texas, but we did it enough that it, it works. You know, we, we would, like, tell people when they came, you know, they came to the church different times, you know, all of our meetings are open. Even we had kind of like an elder group, like, you want to come, you can come. The only time where, if there's something like kind of, you know, if it was a legal issue or whatever, which we didn't have, you know, we might not be able to allow everybody to come in, but you can come. And so, so people would come, because I was like, if you're crazy enough to be at this meeting, you're welcome. And so they would come, and, and some of them would listen for a while, and some of them would discuss, and some of them would serve. And over time, it was pretty amazing that a lot of our like, future leaders came from people who came in to those groups. But it was because we ministered together. We, you know, they saw what, what we were doing and, and they were learning from us and, and we were learning about them. When we treat the church like a club or when we treat the church like a company that, hey, that's the CEO, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the employees, that's the staff, we're, we're missing the point. There is the seeking of godly leaders, but to me, it's a failing of the church if the church is not producing godly leaders from within. And when I say a failing of the church, I say it's a failing of me. But notice what they do here. Because they do that, because they do that, there's no wrong choice the two that they chose, are qualified. It's not like they said, like, let's just have an open election. Anybody wanna run? Come on, throw your hat in the ring. It's like, no, they picked two, and either one of them would have done well. In fact, church history seems to tell us, even though we're not, we don't have you know, all the ironclad evidence, that both became missionaries. No wrong choice. And in fact, the weird part of what they do where they cast lots, it's actually really smart. Casting lots was probably like they had maybe a jar, and in the jar they had two stones, and one was probably had you know, a move for Matthias, you know, and the other one probably had a, you know, something to signify you know, one of the names we have for um, justice or Barsabbas and they basically again prayed, God show us, and then they cast lots. The one that came out, that was the one. You think about that, it's kind of smart in a way. If they had opened it up to an election, or if the disciples had just chosen, it creates all kinds of opportunity for disunity and divisiveness. Instead, they, 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 they have these criteria. They probably had discussions and talked about this and they chose two that they knew could do it. And then they cast lots. But the idea is they're not just seeking someone to fill a spot, they're not just trying to get a quota, they're seeking godly leaders. And so we we, you know we add to this list of of what this early church is doing just in this first chapter. And and you know the advantage they have is they don't have a template, they don't have a they don't have a model, they don't have like oh we can be like that other church because there's no one who's gone before them. They are blazing the trail. But what we find with this church is what I think should be true of every church, including our church. It's not about being a church. It's not even about being the church. It's even worse to start thinking about it's my church or your church or our church or their church. But it's about being his church. His church. If I have any ownership in this church, it is only because of who I am in Jesus Christ and that this is His church. His church. His word. His spirit. His way. It's His church. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, when we have clear direction, we follow his direction. But you go, well, what if we don't have clear direction? What if we don't have a big Pentecost moment? Well, then we already know. Keep praying. Keep studying God's word. Keep following God's word. And if the Spirit never shows up the way He showed up 2,000 years ago, then we devote our lives. We devote our lives to praying for the Spirit and living in the Spirit and being His church. You see, A lot of times people want to pray for the Spirit to come, and what they mean by that is the Spirit is coming, they mean they want some kind of power, they want some kind of vision, they want some kind of miracle, they want some kind of manifestation like that. And if it happens, great, it happens. But do not miss, the Spirit is supposed to already be here, in a powerful, supernatural way. And that's how we love each other. That's how we love each other. And why are we only thirsting for some supernatural event when we're not willing to live in the blessing of God's immeasurable love? They go hand in hand. If we really want the Spirit to come, if we really want to be ready for the Spirit when the Spirit comes, we need to be experiencing the Spirit now. Spirit now in how we love God, how we love His Word, how we love His church, how we love each other, how we love this world.